Uh, right now, I'd like to invite Hester back up to the microphone. Um, uh, the audience mic is there uh, to my right, near the wall, so please come up. Uh, introduce yourselves when you ask a question, please, and I'll be uh, moderating from the other mic. Thanks again. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Uh, Hester, is there any high spots in Holland that, that you can <laughs> escape to if it's uh, six meters, uh, <laughs> if we get six meters higher? Uh, yeah, about a third of the country is higher than that. Oh. Okay. Uh, but not where I'm from. No. <laughs> anyway, my uh, question to you is regarding... Uh, Glaciers in the, in our immediate neighborhood, uh, our watershed is fed by some glaciers, but are they uh, very significant to to our supply of water? And if not, uh, uh, or if they are, what what's going to be the long term uh, result of that if they completely leave us? Well, the the glaciers in the Oldman River Shed are actually coming. The only glaciers that we have are in the St. Mary's River. So they're actually coming from the Glacier National Park region. And I just said they're, <laughs> they're not going to be here in another 25 to 30 years. But they're actually really small right now already. So for our river, it doesn't really make a significant contribution. So for southern Alberta, what's more important in terms of our water provision is the amount of snowfall, and that changes with the climate changing as well. So did that answer your question? Good afternoon. Uh, John Nightingale. Um, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh, first of all, where the hell is or was the Boulder Glacier in Glacier National Park? Because I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, well, it, it is not anymore. So in no. 1932, it used to be there. there. There have been about 50 glaciers that disappeared over the last 100 years. But, but so I they're not on the map pr okay. at present. Do you know where it was, though, just out of curiosity? Um, I, can, I can show you afterwards. Okay. Um, the second question concerns one of your uh, overheads there, and I'm pretty sure it was the famous... Um, hockey stick, because um, I noticed it was attributed to man, who, of course, is uh, one of the leading proponents of climate change. And uh, now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm a global... There's actually no proponents of climate change. They don't exist. I'm sorry? He's a scientist. He's not a proponent of climate change. <laughs> no, but he, he is suggesting could you, could that you, there is this... Could you frame your question, please? <laughs> okay. With regard, with the reference to that hockey stick map that was produced by man, there are a lot of climate change skeptics out there mm -hmm. that literally point ridicule at that um, hockey stick map or hockey stick graph. And I'm wondering how a person can counter the global warming skeptics' um, arguments against global warming and using exactly that type of hockey stick um, um, schematic to 
back up their own points of view in terms of being skeptical about global warming. Right. The, the graph that I was showing is not actually from the man paper. The graph I was showing is the temperature that we reconstructed from all sorts of climate proxies, for example, tree rings, um, borehole temperatures, all sorts of things in, in nature actually record the temperature over hundreds or, or thousands of years. So what it is is just an average temperature that is derived from all those records. Um, and Mike Mann, Michael Mann, he actually used that graph and published it for the first time, and then it became known as the holistic graph. And later on, there were some people that actually used slightly different statistics to actually show, for example, that maybe in the Middle Ages it would have been slightly warmer than it is right now. Um, but those statistics are actually not valid to, to use on climate data. The people that actually denied that the validity of those data, they're economists, uh, statisticians, for example. They're not climate scientists or oceanographers or people that actually really know how to use these data. Um, so that's, that's part of the story, that actually the denial of that hockeystick graph itself is actually not valid, right? And it's, you can actually see, uh, for example, on that website, therealclimate.org, you can actually see exactly broken down why um, these things are valid and why these things are, are not valid. What the data show us is what the data are showing us. If I deny that gravity is existing, it doesn't mean that gravity is not existing, right? So basically what we see in our data is that the climate cha is changing much faster than it has been in the last 10,000 years. Um, the temperature is, right, is higher now than in the last 10,000 years, and that partly humans are influencing that. Don't get me wrong, I am not a climate change skeptic. I'm, if anything, I'm a climate change alarmist. So I was mm -hmm. just interested in your interpretation of that particular uh, hockey stick. Okay, right. thank you. Okay. My name is Frances Schultz, and thank you for a, a very well-presented presentation today. Uh, my question has to do with the, with the latest news that's been in the papers about the huge lake of fresh water that's in the Arctic Ocean. And my question is, um, the source of that fresh water, is that coming off of the continent or is it from the melting of glaciers in the Arctic? Is there a, uh, do you mean the Arctic or the Antarctic? No, I'm talking about the Arctic. They're talking about this huge amount of, of fresh water that's accumulated in the Arctic Ocean that may move out of there and into the Atlantic and start affecting yeah. the, the uh, ocean currents. I, I see what you mean now. I was thrown off a little bit by the word lake because I hadn't heard of a lake. <laughs> so basically what, what we have, uh, besides glaciers, we also have uh, sea ice. And sea ice has been covering the Arctic for, you know, actually since the last 10,000 years as well. And so the North Pole is not really a continent. It's basically a, a, a mass of sea ice. That sea ice now is also melting faster than before. And that 
that meltwater is also fresh. So that's part of what also influences these ocean currents. So some of that water will actually go into the North Atlantic or the North Pacific and actually change some of these currents. But what's more important is that, again, that big white mass that used to be sea ice, sometimes covered with some snow, is now much smaller. So the ocean, the Arctic Ocean, is actually heating up much faster now because all that water surface is dark and it makes that sea ice melt even faster. So there's two effects there. The, the Arctic is, is um, warming up much faster than the rest of the world, and that's part of the, the factor uh, that sea ice melting. And then, yes, that fresh water is actually going into the North Atlantic. But in fact, there's more fresh water from the Greenland ice sheet going into the North Atlantic than from the, um, the sea ice. Because the sea ice is maybe only about six meters thick all over. The Greenland ice sheet in the center is more than three kilometers thick. So there's a lot more fresh water locked in there. My name is John Zinstra. I'm uh, born uh, three meters below sea level mm -hmm. in Holland. <laughs> I'm not a very good swimmer, so I did leave. Uh, you know, a very interesting talk. Uh, thank you very much. I was thinking about that mile of ice about Bovis, and I'm a farmer down here. I'm glad I went away. <laughs> you know, and we went through a big period or whatnot. Actually, the point I actually want to ask you we have Dr. Tim Ball on the one side and Dr. Suzuki on the other side, and there's two different trains of thoughts about the global warming. Which one is real? Dr. Tim Ball figures it's maybe 10 or 100 years we're going through a cycle, and Suzuki says it's really real. What is your opinion? Well, I don't tend to listen to people. I tend to look at data, and that's what us scientists are doing. So um, when I actually look at what Tim Ball is doing with the data is he doesn't understand the data. There's no data that shows us that we're cooling. We're warming, and we can exactly measure. It's like being in a lab. You add some of the chemicals to the atmosphere, you know exactly what it's doing, and that's what the atmosphere is doing right now. So Tim Ball has no proof that any of what his statements are making, that they're actually reflect, reflecting the data that we're measuring. Thank you for a very impressive collection of facts. I'd like to ask you a difficult question. Name, please. I'm sorry? Name, please. I'd like to ask you a difficult question, and, uh, and because I don't understand the other side, could you, in just a few moments, uh, present, from, as you understand it, the, the, the sense of the, the deniers? What, where are they coming from when they look at this data? Uh, where do they get their data other than from you know where? Uh, imagination and other delightful things. But could you, for just a few, few moments, let us hear what the other side of the picture is? Right. Um, 
I can't imagine myself in that in those shoes, <laughs> but but I know that uh, for example the Al um, Gore movie uh, addressed a number of things. Al Gore movie that came out about eight years ago. He addressed a number of things, and when the um, cigarette industry, for example. Um, when it was figured out that tobacco was actually dangerous and carcinogenic, the tobacco industry put a lot of money into denying that because they want to sell their products. Well, right now, a lot of the richest industries around the world are oil companies and like all sorts of affiliates. They're putting a lot of money in trying to hire these scientists or pseudoscientists and some of these people are exactly the same as the ones that actually denied that tobacco was cancerous. So some of it is actually um, deliberate um, misjustification of, of some of the facts just to try and still have us buy big cars, big uh, gas-guzzling cars, for example. Um, some of the other people that deny it are people that don't... <laughs> Climate is very complex. I'm a glaciologist. I know a lot about the complexity of, of, of glaciers. I know a little bit about how it's all connected to the climate. If you're not an expert in it and you just like hear and listen to a fact here, a little fact there, you combine them in the wrong way, you could derive wrong conclusions. And I think some of the deniers actually may do that, so there's no ill harm like intended they're not bad people <laughs> or anything but they just shouldn't work with data that they don't understand a thing about <laughs> uh, Terry Shellington I appreciate your, your utter merciless clarity <laughs> about this. Um, I, my question is around uh, urban planning and uh, the impact of this on what we take for granted in the next say 50 years and I hear you saying that the impact on Lethbridge is not all that significant in terms of the loss of water. <clears throat> uh, I wonder about Calgary, for example, where uh, the Bow River is so important to their, um, to their, I think, city water supply. And has any urban planning been done, been done about um, projections uh, 20, 30, 50 years down the road and, and how that city will, uh, and probably a slightly growing city, will be sustained by... I presume, a diminished water supply? Well, yes, you're right. In terms of the glacier melt, our rivers in Lethbridge won't be affected that much. But in terms of changing um, snowfall amounts and with increasing temperature, you have more evaporation. So we will be affected by having less water too. And right now, as some of you may know, you can't buy any water rights. They're all already distributed. All our water is divided up already. Population growth is actually about 80% of the problem of like us having to deal with water scarcity. Climate change is about 20% of the rest of the problem. So what I still don't understand is that certain things should be standard in the building of houses, double flush toilets, right, with a low flush for the liquids. Um, basically... Tra public transport systems to go around to l reduce the ur urban sprawl that we have to drive everywhere. So in terms of city planning, I think some people have been thinking about that uh, to a certain extent. And I think we can learn a lot from certain other regions like Europe. If you look at public transport in Europe, that is uh, much higher quality and it's much better to get around. So 
get that answered a little bit. Calgary, um, I don't know specific, I mean, all over the province we're actually working on predictions and on on trying to find ways to, to adjust. So certain um, neighborhoods in Calgary are now built more sustainably than they used to be in the 90s and the early 2000s. But I, I don't know, I don't know the person that actually is working on the predictions. Hello. I always bring up the rear here. My name is Frank Toth. In one of my articles, I do a lot of research. There were six so-called scientists who were paid $60,000 apiece by the oil cartel in the United States. And they gradually came over. I have their names in my records. I wrote articles about it. And two of them admitted they were paid $60,000 apiece. They came into Canada, and they also penetrated the university professors of Calgary University who are still antagonists of it. Now, who controls this information? How, how, how is it that this news isn't brought out to the public? Um, I think there's quite a few people that actually have done research to that, and there are some books that came out. For example, Andrew Weaver, he's a famous uh, climatologist that works in, in Victoria. He wrote a book about the climate denial uh, people and exactly how it actually works with where they're funded from, what their background is, if they're actually qualified to talk about the climate. So there are actually... Uh, books out there, but obviously the more money you have, you know that with the elections too, the more money you have, the more um, exposure you get. <laughs> um, so um, some people argue that us scientists, we are only for climate change because it gives us more money. I've never seen that more money. <laughs> so I think money plays, plays money and power plays a big role in that. A few days ago, I, my, name is, uh, my name is Lawrence Deverell. Uh, a few days ago, I was looking outside my backyard. I noticed that where I had some black oil seed, where the birds had been kicking them out of my little bird feeder, it was nicely disappearing down into the snow. The sun had absorbed, uh, the, it had absorbed the, the uh, sunlight. Now, on the top of that mountain, uh, I was a few years ago in archaeology, uh, on the top of that mountain where you found uh, our, uh, uh, what do you call it, you call it Oski, was it? Let's see, yeah. Yeah, whatever his name was. <laughs> that, uh, I was told at that time or read, that uh, prior to that, there had been a volcanic uh, eruption which had deposited uh, dust on the top of, all, all over that area. And so consequently, there was an increase in, in melt rate. And so this is how that it became that, that this, that, uh, that the snowmelt had gone back uh, farther. That's possibly and probably not the only answer, but it's one of them. And uh, I was uh, rather surprised you didn't mention it. Um, 
I didn't mention it, but I can explain it right now. That I actually can give a talk for 10 hours about this. <laughs> so I only <laughs> was given half an hour, so I had to leave some things out. So we, we know what the effect is of volcanic eruptions, for example. Volcanic eruptions will actually cool the Earth worldwide for about one to two years. But when that volcanic ash falls onto a glacier, so either on the ice or on the snow, that ice or snow will actually melt a little bit faster, but just for that one year. So for 5,000 years being buried, that one year of volcanic eruption won't make any difference. So these volcanic eruptions that have been going on, um, there's research of, for example, the last 100 years, we've looked at all the volcanic eruptions and all the climate records. These are direct climate records. And we see that the maximum amount of time that a volcanic eruption ever influences the world climate is a maximum of two, two and a half years. So there are little blips, and that's it. So, for example, Mount Pinatubo, 1991, I don't know if, if anyone remembered, but Mount Pinatubo was one of the biggest eruptions we've had in the last 100 years. That influenced the climate for about two years after. So you see a dip, a slight dip in te global temperature for just one year after, and then a little bit of different um, weather systems in the year after that. Am I allowed to ask yes. one more question? Uh, I'm going to ask you about the, the wisdom of the, there are several irrigation districts in the immediate area that has increased the irrigable acres. Uh, do you see the wisdom in that, given the fact that back uh, 10 years ago there was, uh, they were thinking about cutting acres? And uh, the last few years have been pretty wet, so we're increasing the acreage for irrigation. Is that the wise thing to do in, in your mind? Well, I think irrigation district people are, are not dumb. They're actually not just looking at this year or the next year. They have prediction models, too. They adjust their, their increases or decreases um, by you know the climate predictions as well, and they know that a wet spell for a couple of years doesn't mean that we have a wet wetter uh, next ten years. Um, what may have happened is that it, they make better use of when the water is being provided. For example, if you look in the city here, anyone that actually waters their lawn in the middle of the day is actually losing much, uh, like eighty percent of the water to evaporation. That water doesn't actually end up on your lawn. So the irrigation districts, I think with, with careful management, with the same amount of water, you could do more things, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, – my knowledge of the exact mechanisms are not good enough to actually make a judgment whether that was good or not, but I know that they're knowledgeable people and they're actually like trying to figure out to div how to divide the water that they have. So if you, if you water your lawn ever, do it before sunrise or after sunset, never in the middle of the day. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. My name is Peter Green. Uh, my question, I, I guess it's a bit of a fuzzy-headed sort of uh, question that I've got, but given, given that the, 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 the sphere in which we live is supposed to be a more, more or less a closed system uh, with regard to... Uh, water and various other things, uh, doesn't it somehow uh, 
somehow somehow balance out in that uh, even if the climate is uh, is increasing in temperature in general, the the water is has to go somewhere. Uh, it, it, the the glaciers are, eva- are drying up, um, but the water that has melted from them presumably is going to evaporate. And will it not will it not all even out in the long run in terms of precipitation somewhere else on the on the on the sphere? Yeah, your point is a good one. We are in a, in a closed system. Some of that water that will run off the glaciers actually goes into the ocean, and the ocean level is rising because not all that water evaporates. If all the water that came off the glaciers evaporated, we wouldn't have any sea level rise. But it's true, there are more um, greenhouse gases than just CO2 and methane. Water is one of the greenhouse gases, but there's a big difference between the different greenhouse gases. Water, for example, if you take water vapor in the atmosphere, it will stay there for maybe up to a couple of weeks, and then it will precipitate out. If you put CO2 in the atmosphere, it will take about 100 years before that is actually filtered out. So what we're doing now, and even if we stop it now, it won't actually stop that greenhouse gas effect. So first of all, the the increase of atmospheric water hasn't really increased as much uh, with with the rising temperatures. That cycle is going a little bit faster. You evaporate, then you form clouds, and then you precipitate out, sometimes over the ocean, sometimes over the land. And the effect, basically the atmospheric forcing that the forcing of the, the greenhouse gases is not as potent, as you like, for water vapor as for CO2 or for methane. So the, the reason why we're actually really focusing on CO2, that is much more of um, an atmospheric effect on the warming than any of the other gases right now. There's uh, room for one more question. If no one comes up to the mic, I, I'd like to ask one. Um, Hester, uh, but when the atmosphere is warmer, doesn't it, isn't it capable of holding more water vapor than when it's cooler? Yes. So I said that the atmosphere in certain areas is holding a little bit more water vapor, but it's also um, water or like air masses, they actually move over the earth. So if you move an air mass from the ocean to the land, quite often what you have is precipitation. So we have measured a little bit of increase in water vapor, but because that effect on the, on the greenhouse, the greenhouse effect is actually not as big as some of the other gases. So we do actually have a little bit more evaporation right now because we have a warmer climate. But then wouldn't that um, explain some of the great flooding effects of extraordinary precipitation as well? Those precipitation effects are partly regulated by if you warm an ocean, you know, the butterfly effect. If you warm an ocean, then the, the, the weather systems will actually develop quite often from the ocean. That is very warm, hot air that is actually um, filled with water. That will travel to an area where it will then precipitate. And so we've had more extreme events, partly because of the warming. Right? 
So the one other thing that I want to say about water vapor is if you have a cloud on a cloudy day, do you think it feels warmer or colder than on a not cloudy day? Water vapor has two types of effects. If it forms clouds, it's actually cooling the earth. If it actually absorbs it as a greenhouse gas, it's warming it. So that's part of their diminished effect in terms of the, the total warming. So if you have water vapor in the atmosphere, so much water vapor that you form a cloud, you will actually cool the atmosphere a little bit. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay.